I think it was reflecting on those, those words about how God takes the horrible things and turns them into good things that made me think that I just wanted to sing that again before we began. Um, and our world is a, is a terrible, difficult place. And the events of the last year have not helped. Um, if, if, if your life has been difficult to an extent that is worse than it was beforehand, um, that's not unusual. Um, there's been a real shaking in our world. A real taking of things that we think are certain and sure and are just putting them in a, a shaker of sorts and just violently shaking it. And so our world has been tipped. And it's interesting because um, it's happened in such a short period of time that sometimes when we want to reflect on, on when this pandemic, which is an aspect of, 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 of the difficulty, began, it sometimes seems a lot longer than a year ago, right? That it was a year ago that we began to change the services. This thing is going to go after me, isn't it? Um, we began to change the services. We began to go online. We began to do things in a different way than the way we'd done them before. Goodness. I sometimes wonder how these things work. Uh, um, but I'm going to press on anyway. I'm just going to keep going. And, and you just act normal, even if it lands on me. Just act normal. Just act normal. I grew up in a house with four sisters um, who, who would attack things. They broke a window one time hitting a wasp. Um, and, and so, and so we, we, were, we were pretty vicious in our response to nature. And I sometimes wondered whether the, there were wasps and mosquitoes and things in the Garden of Eden. And if they were, whether Adam was friends with them. Uh, and then something changed. <laughs> and we get to where we are now. But anyway, here we are. Here we are. And, and so as, as we reflect on the brokenness, the despair, the difficulty in our world, the question is, what should we do? What can we do? And this is the reason that we're beginning a new series this morning. The title of the series is Rebuild. Um, it's taken from the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to walk over the next eight or so weeks through a chapter at a time of the book of Nehemiah. And my task today, um, and I came armed with rocks to stop the pages flipping and all sorts of things and pages blowing away. We're going to go through a lot of scripture. There's a lot of empty chairs here. If you want to come further forward, come further forward. But if you don't, get ready to be flipping through your Bibles. Who has a physical Bible with you? Who still carries one of those things? Okay. And so I'm going to help you find things in there if you need to find things in there. If you've got your phones, uh, get your phones open in your Bible app um, and be ready to... I mean, it might be even a point where I say, someone just read out the verse, whoever gets there first. Because, because one of the joys of of this kind of setting is that we can be way more interactive than we are when everyone is sitting 10,000 feet apart and masked and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we, as, you, as you know, we're doing eight weeks at least out here. We thought eight weeks because we're figuring that that's the time that it's going to get too hot. But who knows what we'll actually do then. Um, and so let me, let me put Nehemiah in context for you. Um, this, this is not going to be a history lesson. Those of you who, who love history and love dates, in the Bible um, and dates in history, you can go look up every one of the dates of every one of these things that I mentioned. I'm going to mention just, just one date because when I was putting this together, I realized I had about eight or nine dates in it, and I thought that that's interesting to some people, but not to most people. Um, and so I scrubbed all the dates out. Um, and if you need help finding Nehemiah in the Bible, um, it's a little bit before Psalms. 
And so if you want to find Psalms in your real Bible, just go to about the middle bit and move to the left a little bit. Nehemiah comes after 2 Kings, after First and Second Chronicles. It becomes before the books of Esther, Job, and Psalms. And historically, certainly in the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They're one book because they describe a single sequence of events. And it's not until about the second or third century um, of our time that the books are divided into Nehemiah and, 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 and Ezra. And chronologically, if you're thinking about where this all sits in the history of Israel, um, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. And so, actually, in the books in the Old Testament, chronologically, the only book that probably actually historically happened after this is the book of, of Malachi. Is this helping you understand where Nehemiah sits? And if you think what's going on in the, in the history of Israel, Israel has been cast out of the land because they've not lived as God wanted them to live. And they're living in exile, and they're living in different parts of the world, in Babylon, in Persia. And the temple was destroyed. I said I was going to give you one date, about 587 BC, the temple is destroyed. And this is where Israel finds themselves in this, in this terrible time of brokenness, ruin, and despair. And that's the reason that we started to look at Nehemiah as something that could be potentially helpful to us, whether there might be principles in the book of Nehemiah to help us understand how we can walk in our time of despair and in our time of difficulty. And one of the things that you'll notice if you ever read through Ezra and Nehemiah is that there are decrees that the kings give. The kings issue decrees. If you think about what that actually means, it means that the head of state at some point, and this isn't a, a, a Hebrew head of state, decides that he's going to issue a decree that something should happen. And the thing that he issues a decree for it to happen is something that's according to the will of God. And you think for a moment how amazing that is, that a, that a king of Persia at some point issues a decree saying that the people should go back to the land and do what it is they're meant to do, which is for God's will. And each of those things that is decreed is something that one of the prophets prophesied would happen. And so you begin to get a sense that God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work bringing something about, and He's working not only in the hearts and minds of those individuals uh, who, who, who are His people, but He's also working in the hearts and minds of the kings of the nation, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it shows us how God can bring about His purposes. And so let's journey through the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah so we can put in context where we're going to start today, which is Nehemiah chapter 1. In Ezra, Verse chapters 1 to 6, they return to Jerusalem. And there's about 50,000 that return to Jerusalem, led by Zerubbabel. The altar is rebuilt. The temple foundations are laid. And then, of course, as always happens anytime you begin to do something for God, opposition arises. Opposition arises in about Ezra chapter 4. We see that the enemies begin to try and build with them. Isn't that interesting that they don't initially try and resist them outright. They try and join them in the work that they're doing for God. And then they discourage them. And then they begin to trouble them. And then they begin to frustrate them. And eventually, by the time you get to Ezra 4 verse 24, the work ceases. And so the work of opposition is effective. And this happens in our lives also, that when we try and do something for God, it's interesting, I believe that, that if we're doing nothing for God, the enemy's got nothing to resist. But the minute you start to do something for God, look how it begins with the enemy trying to get into the thing that you're doing with you. Not to stop you overtly, but to do it with you so that he somehow is part of the, the plan and the working that you're, you're about. And, and, and then, if that doesn't work, then to frustrate you and to discourage you and to trouble you until the work you're trying to do for the Lord stops. 
And it's about 20 years later after the work ceases that it begins again. And right in there, you'll find the prophet Haggai, who preaches, uh, prophesies words of encouragement. Because what the people have actually done is they started building the things of God, but they get distracted building their own houses. And so the prophecy of Haggai is saying, look, look at your own houses. They're in a great state, but the house of God is ruined. Forget that. Get back to the things of God. And so they eventually get back to the things of God. But of course, when the work resumes, it resumes with opposition again. Ezra, chapter 6, verse 15, the temple is finished and dedicated. But the interesting thing we note is that the glory of God does not fill this temple at this time. I think I mentioned this last week, that when the tabernacle is built in the wilderness, when they've built it exactly according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain, what happens? The glory of God fills the tabernacle. When they build the temple of Solomon, the first temple, according to the pattern that God shows Solomon, what happens? The glory of God fills the temple. But this temple they build, the glory of God does not fill the temple at this time. They're building something for God to fill with his glory. When? So you've got to go all the way over to the New Testament. When Jesus comes into the temple and opens the scroll of Isaiah and begins to read... And Jesus begins to speak about destroying a temple and rebuilding it in three days. And you see at that point that God has moved on from a temple made of bricks and mortar into a temple that is the physical presence being of of Jesus himself. And these days, who is the temple of God? We are. The church built on the, we sing the song Cornerstone, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. A temple built on the cornerstone that is Christ foundations that are the prophets and the apostles, and every one of us a living stone, a temple for the purposes of worship, a temple for the presence of God to inhabit. That's who we are. But when we get right back into Nehemiah, we realize that they finished the temple. And if you want to know where the book of Esther fits in, the book of Esther fits in chronologically right about here at about the point that the temple is finished and dedicated. And a plot arises to kill all the Jews in Persia. And Esther does what she's meant to do, which is going into the king in an act that brings about the salvation of her people. Ezra, 7 to 10, Ezra is a scribe, returns to Jerusalem from Persia, and his focus is to seek and to teach the law of God. And he encourages the people, this is the important point, to separate themselves from the surrounding nations. Because you know what's happened is, Israel has intermarried. They've married nations that aren't the people of God, and because of that, the next thing that happens is they begin to walk in the habits and the practices of those people is a mixing of God's people with the world. And so Ezra reads the law and he encourages the people to separate themselves from the surrounding nations. So that's the book of Ezra. As I said, one book really with Nehemiah. And so that leads us right to the top of Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read together Nehemiah chapter 1 beginning at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Halkiah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity of the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, 
that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. He's not a priest. He's just a cupbearer. He's just got an ordinary job, although he's got an ordinary job in a high place. And he's situated in a place that means that somehow he's about to do something that is useful for the purposes of God. And so I want you to reflect on yourself and reflect on where you are in life. Reflect on your placement, position, connections that you have. Because later today, I'm going to give every one of us a chance just to begin to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you calling me to do? in the place that I am, with the gifts that I have, with the connections that I have. And for Nehemiah, it begins right in the place that he is, which is in the court of the king. Nowhere else. He's already in the right place to do the thing that God wants him to do. And so chapter 2 of Nehemiah, uh, let me just give you a quick overview of the rest of the book. With the king's permission, he returns to Jerusalem, and he surveys the walls of Jerusalem, and he does it at night, secretly. Um, and then they begin to build in chapter 3, but they begin to build, it says, with tools and weapons. They have a tool in one hand and a weapon in, one, in another hand. Why would that be? Defense. What are you doing with the tool? The work of building. What are you doing with the weapon? Defending your right to build. Thank you very much. You really can shout out. It's all good. I need to hear it because I'm going to leave these big spaces for people to say things. It's going to be awkward otherwise. <laughs> so you're, you're building and you're defending your right to build. And so look at this. Um, that, is, is that not also interesting to us? That as we're doing work for God, somehow there has to be an appreciation of the fact that when you're doing spiritual work, that, that because opposition arises, that you might have to defend your right to build. Each family builds together one piece of the wall until it's completed in about chapters 6 and 7. And eventually, the people gather together for a public reading of the law of the Lord, and they recite their history. And Ezra does this, standing on this large, purpose-built wooden platform. There is worship. There is the confession of sin. There is weeping. There is celebration. And there's the most important thing, which is a covenant of recommitment to the Lord. The people all say that we are coming back to God, and we really mean it. And if you think about that, all of those things are the characteristics of, of a revival. Imagine if in our land, there was a mass turning back to God. That the whole country or the whole church turned to God in a really serious way. 
And it's all orchestrated by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God's the one that moves the heart of the king, the one that moves the heart of Nehemiah, the one that moved prior to Nehemiah, the other king of Persia to issue that decree, who moved Ezra, who moved the people to begin to go back to the place that they should be in, that they weren't in. And it all begins, this revival, with the work of how many people? One man. Isn't that interesting? I remember once someone once saying that if you had a... If you had a a tablecloth on this table and you pulled the middle of the tablecloth and you jerked it violently upwards, everything would move because of it. In a way of saying that if one man, if one woman, rather than saying that it's someone else's responsibility, if one man went hard, one woman went hard after God, pursued God in a serious way, could that be enough to change the trajectory of a community, of an entire country, of an entire nation? Because it was here. It was here. Nehemiah does something, and it brings about through his work what seems to be a revival and a turning back to God of the entire nation of Israel. And so let's focus for a moment on chapter 1, verse 3. It says there that the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province there are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So ponder that for a moment and reflect on that and think how that might mirror where we find ourselves today. In great distress and reproach. Some other translations said the people were greatly troubled. The people were greatly afflicted. They were in disgrace. They were shame. They were burdened. There were things weighing on them that were just too much. They were too difficult. Whether they were but I'm not going to talk about what they could be because we're going to come to see what you see a little later. But the people weren't where they should be. They were living apart from the place that God wanted them to live. And this was significant. They were outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and those walls were actually broken down. Now, I've got a few observations here about Nehemiah's approach. None of these are meant to be something that you've got to do all of them. I'm not presenting them to you like that. I'm just presenting them to you as as I read the text, I saw these things. Um, And I'm going to share each of them with you because I want you to ponder your own situation. I want you to ponder your own life, your own circumstance, your own place in life, the things that God may be saying to you. And I want you to wonder whether or not any of these things might apply to you. And the first observation is this, is for Nehemiah, it begins with spiritual understanding. In chapter uh, 1, verse 2, when Hananiah comes from Judah, he says something to him about the people and how they are in great distress and reproach and that the walls are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And you realize how easy it would have been for him to say, hmm, and then gone back to what he was doing right before. Because that means that maybe many times people share things with us that are of kingdom significance. And we just... That's interesting. We sip another Starbucks beverage. I love Starbucks. We drink another beer. We flick the television on. We open the phone. We get distracted somehow when God might have actually spoken to us something that absolutely mattered vitally to us and to the people. We just brush it by. We distract ourselves with something else. But instead of this, for Nehemiah, it began with a spiritual understanding. It began with him hearing. It began with him seeing. And it began with him being moved by something that mattered to God. And that's where it has to start, that our hearts have to be broken like God's heart is broken. 
We have to care passionately for the things that God cares passionately for. And that means we have to pay attention to the things that God is saying to us. And that means we have to pray for the eyes of our understanding to be opened. As Paul, when he was praying for the Ephesians, said that, I pray that God would open the eyes of your understanding, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him in a sense that, that are naturalized and never enough to see the things that God wants us to see. We have to see with spiritual eyes. And so as you reflect on your week, as you reflect on the year, as you reflect on the things people have been saying to you with spiritual understanding, what do you see then if we're not distracted? The second observation I have is this, is that for Nehemiah, it was family first. Isn't it interesting that when God speaks through um, the man that comes to him, he's not talking about the surrounding nations. He's not saying these nations are in a terrible state. Look how Persia's in a bad place. Look how Babylon's in a bad place. He's saying, look at my people first. Look at my people, because if my people who are the light of the world, my people who are the salt of the earth are in a mess, where's the world? It has to start where? with the house of God. It has to start with the people of God. It has to start with the people who call God their God. Because if it doesn't begin there, then who then preaches? Who then goes? Who then defines light and darkness if the church themselves don't do it? And then we can look at the world and we can curse the world and we can say the world's a mess, but it's our fault. Because we're not being and doing what we're meant to do and be, right? And so it begins for Nehemiah first with the family. And, and if you were to turn to 2 Peter um, verse one, ch- chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, there's, a, there's this sequence of things that Peter says that we as Christians should always make sure that we're, we're adding stuff to, to ourselves, that we don't begin with the Lord and then find ourselves 20 years later not find ourselves 20 years later exactly the same. And he says that there's this list in first, uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7. And the list begins with, with virtue. He says you've got to make sure that there's virtue. And to virtue, you've got to add knowledge. And to knowledge, you've got to add, it's interesting, once you've got knowledge, you might then be able to have some self-control. And to self-control, once you've got self-control, you might be able to persevere. And when you're persevering, Peter's next thing is he says there's some aspect of godliness that begins to be evident in your life. But the next two are the ones that are the most interesting. He says brotherly kindness and then love. Isn't it interesting? Peter seems to be saying that if you can't even love your brothers, you've got no hope loving the world. And so how do you work out forgiveness First here. How do you work out forgiveness? First in your house. First with the people of God. How do you work out unity? First with the people of God. And then you can might be able to work it out for the world. Where do you do your best giving? First with your brothers and sisters who have need. And then practicing that enough, you might have something to get outside the walls to the world. Galatians 6 verse 10 um, says this, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. It's got to be wind noise, right? Especially to those who are the household of faith. So in other words, do good to everybody, but do your most good to those who are the household of faith. Family first. So it begins with spiritual understanding. And then the second thing is family first. And then the third observation I have is walls matter. Why? Why are walls important? Why do we need walls? What do walls do? Protection from? Burglars in the night. Burglars in the night. What else? 
weather, things outside of the walls, right? What else do walls do? They mark boundaries. Yeah, they tell us where the line should be. If I built a wall here, it'd be really clear where the line is. Because you can sort of see the line. And there's two little bits of tape there that told me where the table was meant to go. But if I'd built a wall, it would have been really, really clear where the table should have been. And the interesting thing is that there's a proverb. Um, it's Proverbs. Turn to this with, with me, please. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34. Um, the writer of this proverb says, I went past the field of the lazy man, by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Isn't that interesting? In the absence of walls, the prowler comes, the burglar comes. How? Quickly. Nothing to stop the prowler coming in because there's no wall for them to climb over. There's no wall for them to climb. It's easy. They can come and go as they want. And this is the issue that Israel is having is because there's no, there's no walls. They've gone back and you think in Ezra, they've rebuilt the foundations of the temple and the altar. They've built the temple, but there's no walls to the city. And so the work is like half finished. And if you think about this, what's it telling us if we think about the significance of walls? It means that the people of the church can get out as easily as the people of the world can get in. It means that we as the, as the community of God don't know where the lines are. We don't know where the boundary is. We don't know where to stop. And we are, this is the horrific thing, indistinguishable from the world because there's no walls. The world's issues, therefore, overtake the people of God. The world's priorities overtake the people of God. The world's approach overtakes us. And the world's issues divide us. If I took a poll today, I guarantee you that we are as divided on a number of issues, and I'm going to talk about them in a minute, the exact same issues that the world is divided on. And if we're as divided on them, isn't that problematic? Because that means that the world's division and the divisions that they trumpet on the news channels that divide the world divide us. And if they divide us and we're divided against ourselves, the scripture says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And whereas Jesus prayed in John 17 that his people, his church would be how many? One. Not two. Not three. Not four. Not on this side of an issue and that side of an issue, but one. The scripture says in another place, there is one spirit, one Lord, one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But if I spoke about, is COVID real or not? Division. Position of science. Division. What do we think of Dr. Fauci? Division. Masks or not? Division. Vaccines, division. Vaccine passports, division. Black lives matter, division. Blue lives matter, division. Police generally, division. Former President Trump, division. President Biden, division. Conspiracy theories, division. 
fables, false truth, fiction, election integrity, voting rights, division. Before we get to the older issues, we start to talk about politics, division, gun rights, division, possessions, whether they matter or not, whether we should be sowing like it doesn't matter and we're storing treasures up in heaven, or do we think about possessions the way the world does? Because the world's issues have become our issues. Division, morality, right and wrong, division. We can't line up about anything. And because we can't line up about anything, we're just like the world. Because there's no walls. And we're not one, as Jesus prayed that we should be one. And something's gone wrong because the walls are broken down. We no longer understand what it means to be Christian. We're no longer distinguishable from the world just like it was in Nehemiah's day. And you realize that when they go after the law and they find the law and they begin to read the law and they stand on the platform and read the law again, the first thing they call the people of Israel to do is to be separate from the world. We are not meant to be like the world. We're meant to be different from them. We're meant to be in this place. And they look at us and they see something that doesn't look like them. Rather than when they look at us, they see something that looks like them, arguing about the same stupid things falling apart about it, divided on it, and they think, you know what's going on there? Where is God? Where is the God who says that my church should be separate? Where is the God that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Where is the God that says that at the end of the day, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him? This hurts, right? It's hard. It's hard to hear this, but it's because the walls are broken down. And so for Nehemiah, it began with spiritual understanding. It began with him putting family first. And it began with him recognizing that, God, the walls are broken. And that we no longer are separate from the world. We're no longer distinguishable from the world. And God, that's a problem. And you know what? Who's the leader of the problem? I'm part of it. But you know what Nehemiah does first? Does he tweet? Uh, Does he post on Facebook? Does he take out a billboard, a news channel? What does he do first? In verse 4, it says that what does Nehemiah do? Somebody tell me what it says that Nehemiah does. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Look at that. What's the first work? So this is the point. Do the spiritual work first. Why? Because it is spiritual work. Why? Because we have opposition that is not fleshly opposition. Because if we were fighting against flesh and blood, then we should do fleshly things and things that are human. But because we're fighting against spiritual opposition, the scripture says, Ephesians 6, that we war against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What does that mean? There's a lot of them. And they hate God, and they hate the people of God. And as we saw through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in that overview, is that any time they begin to do anything, anything you begin to do something from God, that opposition's going to arise. And so if you fight the God battle with natural weapons, we're going to fail in it. And so it was in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus began to preach that he said, when you pray, he didn't say if you pray, did he say that? He said, when you pray, what must you do first? Stand in a public place on a loud platform and 
bellow it from a foghorn that I'm praying and I'm righteous and I'm godly. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. He said, when you pray, what must you do? Go into a secret place. And when you've gone into your secret place, close the door and pray to God in the secret place because God sees in the secret place. And the God who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. He then said, if you bother to fast because you love food so much that you're never going to do it in your whole life. Did he say that? No, he says, when you fast, when you fast, whether that means it lasts for 40 days like it did for Jesus and some others, whether you fast a meal, whether you fast something that's dear to you, whether it's for a meal or two days or three days or something, it's recognition that fasting and prayer somehow get God's attention in the secret place. And when you fast, you don't have to tell everybody about it. As, as this says, it says basically just put on your, your cream so when your face starts looking dry and your lips are cracked and, and your breath starts to smell bad because you haven't eaten and the ketones are getting over you, then take a breath mint and then spit it out because you don't want to swallow it because it might be food and you get in trouble with God. And you, you know, but, but basically, but take it seriously. When you... When you do the spiritual work first, so we're going to come in a moment to, to beginning to ask well, how we could begin to pray. But we've got to live like this. We have to live like this. We have to do more work in the secret place than in public. It's the core of what it means to be a Christian. You have to. We have to. So often we rely on our talents, our abilities, our intellect, the things we can do, and we don't pray, and we don't fast. But for Nehemiah, he wept, his heart being broken, he weeps, and he gets before God, and he prays. And to prayer, he thinks, you know what, i got to fast as well, because that's this, it's so significant. Sometimes they used to sit in sackcloth and cover themselves with ashes. And in other words, it's, she was saying back, it's humbling yourself before God. Because the scripture says, well, when you humble yourself before God, what does he do? He lifts you up. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's always find ourselves in the place of humility before God, just as Nehemiah found himself doing this spiritual work. And then if you were to look through verses 5 to 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1, you'd see that Nehemiah starts to say things that he can only say because he knows God. And so my fifth point is, you've got to know God. Because you can't pray, oh God, you said in your word this, if you don't know what it said in his word, just lay it down. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, thank you. If you don't know what God has said, if you don't know like Nehemiah says, God, let your ear be open, let your ear be attentive, Oh God, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. If you don't understand God, if you don't know that that's the nature of our God, you can't pray like that. In the New Testament, it says that we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 6, it says that we, we shouldn't be like babies. We should be mature. It says that we shouldn't need people to teach us. We should be teaching it says that we shouldn't be drinking milk 
we should be eating solid food. And so that's another one of those things. As we look at our Christian lives, if we still need people to teach us, if we're still drinking milk and we can't digest the complicated, deeper stuff, we need to commit to growing and we need to commit to knowing the Lord because it's only when we commit to knowing the Lord that we, in the time of prayer and fasting, can say, oh God, I know you. And I know that you won't stand for this. And I know that you said this. And I know that you said this about my wife, about my family. And I know you said this. Let it be according to your word, God. Let it be according to the character of my God who is good. Let it be according to your grace and your mercy. Because you said, if we humble ourselves and pray, seek your face, turn from our evil ways, then you're going to hear from heaven and heal what the whole land. Really? You've got to know that he said that before you can pray it. And so to recap, it begins with spiritual understanding. Pray that God opens the eyes of your understanding. Pray that God opens the eyes of your understanding of your brothers and, the sister, and your sisters so that we don't just hear things and it just brushes past us. Recognize that we do good, but we especially do good to the family of faith. Recognize that walls are important, and if they've been broken down, ask God to begin to show us how we can again become a distinct people, a people separate from the world. Fourth point was do the spiritual work first because it's a spiritual work that we're in. Pray, fast, mourn, sit before God. Do what you've got to do in a place of humility that God might lift you up because this is what happens to Nehemiah. We'll see next week in chapter two that having prayed and fasted, he goes into the king and the king says, hey man, what's up? And he says, my people are in a bad place. And that's what leads to it. Well, it's actually interesting to think about that. Clearly, Nehemiah wasn't hiding the, half, half the fasting and the, and the mourning enough because the king saw it. Or maybe God just put it on him and he sees with spiritual eyes that this, my cupbearer doesn't look right today. Imagine you worked in the White House. Some staffer in a corridor in a, one of the White Houses and the president comes past you with 50 Secret Service agents one day and says, what's it? Hold on a sec. Pause. Young man, young lady, what's up? And you tell him. And God had moved on that person's heart also to issue a decree based on the words that come out of your mouth. Imagine that, because that's what happens here. It's that big. It's that significant. You're a cupbearer. You're, a, I don't know, a sweeper in the Oval Office. <laughs> hey, seen you here every day. What's up? Nothing, sir, Mr. President. No, really, what's up? And you tell him. And he's so moved because God's worked in that man's heart as well and prepared something. Whether it's your workplace or your school or your neighborhood or your community or your family, you see how significant it is to hear what God is saying and to walk having done the spiritual work first, knowing his word. And this is the last point. You have to take ownership of it. And what I mean by taking ownership of it is that we're not like the Pharisee who went up to the temple and prays and said, oh God, these people are terrible and thank God I'm not like them. And I live in a land of people of unclean lips and thank God I'm not like that. No, that's not what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, is it? In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has a vision of the glory of God, he says, I am a man, woe is me, of unclean lips. 
living amongst the people of unclean lips. He recognizes the sin of the surrounding community is his also. We have acted corruptly, Nehemiah says, verse 7. We have sinned. I confess the sins of the children of Israel because we have sinned. And my father's house and I have sinned. There's a joining in it. There's a recognizing that this thing that you see is not separate from you. It's not separate from us. If God opens your eyes and you see something, it's because you're in it. You're part of the problem. But the amazing thing is you're also part of the solution. Just like Nehemiah, oh Lord, I pray, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant who desires to fear your name and let him prosper this day. And God, let us prosper on this day. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. So I'm going to pause for a minute um, before we come to communion and, and, and we'll all take communion together in just a bit and I want to lead us all in that. But I want to ask you this question then. So what, what do you see? You can scribble notes down. You can pause. What is the great distress and disgrace that you see in the people amidst the people of God? What's the mess that God's brought to your attention that you see so clearly that it makes you mad? That it breaks your heart, maybe. That you weep because of it. That you're so upset because of it that you, you can't get past it. What is that? Do you see financial issues in our world, emotional issues? Do you see isolation, disconnection? Do you see addiction, physical health issues, emotional, mental health issues, spiritual health issues? Do you see marriages struggling? Do you see families struggling? Do you see kids needing parents? Do you see issues of race and ethnicity? Do you see a bunch of people who are just afraid? They don't dream anymore. They're timid. They're fearful. And it was bad before the last year, but it's worse now. And so as Nick and the worship team play music for a little bit, I want you to just pause in a moment of reflection. This is just you and God. You don't have to talk to anybody about it because I'm going to encourage you to begin a work in a, in a secret place. Ask God, God, what are you saying to me? that you might not be saying to the person sitting absolutely next to me, what are you saying to me? Write it down, maybe. Reflect on it and begin to pray. Begin to pray here. And you don't need to pray out loud. You don't need to stand on a table and pray because God hears and sees in the secret place. And we trust his word, his faithfulness, that he says that he rewards openly. So as you pray, pray with expectation that God hears. And at some point, in some way, God might lead you to pray more, to begin to fast, to call others into it with you. And then you look and see what God will do. Maybe the Lord's calling you to be a rebuilder of walls. Maybe God's calling you to, to help with unity across lines of division. Maybe God's calling you to be the one that helps children that need parents or marriages that need restoring or people who are in addiction or people who don't know him 
or to give financially because you're just blessed in a way that, that it can make a difference to something particular that God's putting on your heart. But I encourage you just to, to not quit with what the Lord's saying to you and to persist in it. Let him break your heart. Ask him to cause you to feel how he feels about it. That if he's mourning, that you mourn with him. That if he's joyful, that you're joyful with him. And to walk in the way that he's calling you to walk.